Good morning. Oh, that felt loud. <clears throat> Good morning. My name is Christian. For those of you that don't know me, um, I am fairly new here, and I have the privilege of bringing the word today. So um, before I do that, I did want to uh, say something about this little book that you may have heard about, Gentle and Lowly. I read this over a year ago. And uh, I read it for the first time over a year ago. And when I read it, it was one of those things where you see something that you know you'll be hearing about for a while. <laughs> I read this book. It really impacted me. I, 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 you know, I'm a seminary student. I love the word of the Lord. I, I'm a pastor. And yet this book was so instructive to me to understand something as basic as the grace of God. The, na the name of it is Gentle and Lowly, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And that covers all of us, sinners and sufferers. We're both of them. <laughs> and so if you uh, haven't picked one up yet, we have them at the lobby. So, you know, if, for those of you that want to read it, pick one up. Uh, please read. Yeah, it's free. And so please read it. I wish I would have gotten my copy of it free. Um, <laughs> But uh, it's a wonderful book, and so I did want to encourage you guys, if you haven't picked one up, we'll be going over it together in the new year, and I would encourage you, read it before the new year, read it again when we're all reading it together, it is well worth it. It's definitely a book that, when I read it the first time, I told myself, I'm going to be reading this every year. It had such an impact on me that I will be going over and over and over it. So I highly recommend it, um, and so please make sure you pick up a free copy. With that said, how about we um, jump to today's message. This morning, uh, we are kicking off our Advent series, and I am so excited, I got to tell you. I love Christmas, uh, maybe a little too much for someone my age. Um, you know, I, I'm a pastor, so of course I love, G I love Christmas because of Jesus, but there are so many like peripheral things about Christmas that I absolutely love as well. Um, but I'm so excited about this Advent season. And for those of you that may not be familiar with the term Advent, the Advent season is a, is a season in the church calendar that happens four Sundays, the four Sundays leading to Christmas. And the word Advent actually means coming. You may remember that between the Old and the New Testament, there was a period of 400 years of silence from God. The world was falling apart, as it always has since the fall. And after Israel had broken their covenant with God over and over again, all the blessings that God had given them through his promises in the covenants had started to unravel one by one. The power and influence they once had, they once had, had now disappeared. The land that God had promised them and given them had been taken over by other uh, authorities and kingdoms. And so the world was broken for the people of Israel. And for 400 years, they didn't, they didn't hear from God. And yet, the people of God, though they couldn't hear his voice, they still had a wealth of promises to hold on to with hope. Because you see, God has promised through the prophets that a king, a messiah, a deliverer will one day come. And so they waited. And that's what we mean by the term Advent. It's a season of waiting. Unfortunately, I think that in the church, we have distorted the meaning of the season of Advent. It seems that we have turned the season of Advent into an early celebration of Christmas. And like I said, I love Christmas. My wife doesn't like it, but sometimes in the middle of the year, in June, July, I just listen to Christmas music just because I love it, you know. 
And so <clears throat> I love Christmas. And yet I think that we are doing ourselves at the service whenever we view the season of Advent as a pre-celebration of Christmas. That is not what it's meant to be. We have turned a season of waiting into a season of premature feasting. We get swept in, swept by, you know, swept into this Christmas spirit that the world talks about. But when you really think about it, what in the world is a Christmas spirit? It's nothing. It's a fabrication by the world, isn't it? Church, the season of Advent is meant to be a season of waiting and reflecting. What we're waiting for, though, is not Christmas Day, but we await the second coming of He who is mighty, our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised He would one day come back. Church, when we celebrate Advent, we are not looking forward to December 25th and all it entails, family time, food, presents. Like I said, I love that day. But during the season of Advent, we take, to- we take the time to look at the reality of this broken world. We look at this broken world in the eye and we cry, come Lord Jesus. During the season of Advent, in the words of Fleming Rutledge, we are not looking backwards sentimentally to a baby. We are looking forward to the only one in whom the promise of peace will someday be fulfilled. Advent refuses to dwell in the past that never was. Advent is about the future. It isn't a season of remembering something that happened a long time ago. It is a season of preparation for the great coming day of the kingdom of God. So what do you say that this morning we, tr- we choose to resist the urge to be swept into the spirit of Christmas along with the rest of our culture? Let us take the moment to think about and meditate on the fact that we live in this broken world, but we are awaiting the deliverance. No matter how much makeup we put on this broken world with all the Christmas lights, with the red Starbucks cups and cr- bad Christmas music, we live... In a, in a world that is broken and that is in need of a deliverer. We live in the in-between. We live in the already not yet. Christ already came and he will come again. And so instead of joining the world in a superficial celebration of Christmas, let us this morning join creation as it groans for the coming of Christ. And in order to do that, I want us to look at Psalms 2. But what do you say we take a moment to pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, as as Josiah mentioned earlier, that you chose to reveal yourself to us, Lord. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, Father, and that we do not have to wonder what it is that that you want from us, Lord. Father, this morning we choose to hear you. We choose to to look at your word and ask, what is it that you want us to do and how is it that you want us to live, God? Lord, we pray. And I specifically pray for this very moment, Father, that as I preach, Father, that if there's anything that I say that is of my own making, Lord, I pray that it will be forgotten. Father, if there's anything that I say that is contrary to the truth of Scripture, Lord, I pray for it to fall to the ground and never be remembered. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for the fact that you speak to us today in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This morning, like I said, we will be looking at Psalm 2. And this this psalm is actually mentioned 18 times in the New Testament. It is mentioned more than any other psalm in the New Testament. This psalm is what we call a messianic psalm because it prophesies the coming of a kingdom and a deliverer. 
Though we do not know the exact time or the circumstances of when this song was written, we do know that it was written during the time of waiting. Israel had already had kings, but in his covenant with David, God had promised a new king that would come from his line, from the line of David, and this king would be different because this would be an everlasting king. Now, it is believed that this psalm was a coronation psalm in that it was, um, that it was read during the coronation of the kings after, after David. The New Testament actually attributes this, this psalm to David as, as the author. So it is very possible that when a king was anointed in the Old Testament, um, this psalm would be read. Now, if you ever read the Old Testament, if you're, if you're at all familiar with First and Second Kings, with First and Second Chronicles, you know that not one of those kings actually lived up to what this psalm says. Not one of them. We know then that this psalm wasn't talking about those kings. We know that this was talking about a better king. Or shall we say, a mighty king. In this psalm, we see how there are only two ways to live in this, in this fallen world. We can either live in rebellion in rebellion against the rightful king, or we can take refuge in him. So this morning, I want to encourage us as a church to really meditate on how we are to live as, as children of God. That's how we are to live in the season of waiting and the in-between that we find ourselves in. The first thing that I want you to notice, my first point this morning is this, that because we have a mighty king, we eagerly wait, even as the world around us rages against him. Psalms 2, verses 1 uh, 1 through 3 says this, Why do the nations rage and the prophets plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us uh, burst their bonds, not bodies, by the way, um, apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice this. The psalmist starts with a rhetorical question. A question. He says, why do the nations rage and plot against God? It makes no sense to him. He is astounded that some people would set themselves against the creator of the universe. The reality, though, is that since the fall, this world has been filled with those who rage against God. The author then here talks about nations and kings who rage against God. And when we read this passage as Americans in 2021, if we're not careful, we might nod along with the psalmist and say, yep, yep, I agree. Those kings and those nations, North Korea, Iran, and Russia. The church, when the, when the psalmist talks about the nations, it's not talking about Russia. It's not talking about North Korea, Iran, or whatever country may come to mind. When the psalmist talks about these nations, he's not talking about them. When he talks about the kings of the earth, he's not talking about Putin. He's not talking about Kim Jong-un. He's not talking about any other world leader that may pop into your mind. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. This psalm is talking about us. Because you see, it's talking about every man and woman that have lived in this earth ever since the fall. This raging, this plotting that he talks about can be found in our hearts, in the heart of every person since creation. After Adam and Eve fell. The Bible very clearly tells us that all of us were at some point enemies of God. We were actually objects of his wrath, Paul tells us. 
when he says that the kings set themselves against the Lord, that means that they are preparing for war, that they are getting ready for war, for battle, because you see, the Bible makes it clear that the conflict between God and man is not small. It's not just a quarrel. It's not just an awkward disagreement with God. Man's rebellion against God is war. R.C. Sproul describes our sin as cosmic treason, as you've heard it before. Church, let me say this this morning, our, our sin is a big deal. Our sin is a big deal. And you see, in this life, you can be one of two things. You can be a child of the loving Father who is God, or you can be his sworn enemy. Which is why the psalmist is baffled as to why man ever thinks that it, this is a good idea. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things from these three verses. Three things. Number one, I want you to notice that man's rebellion is not against religion, but against the anointed of the Lord. Did you notice it doesn't say that the nations rage against the gods, against religion? No. Because you see, people are comfortable with the idea of a God. A God of our own making will never demand anything from us. The God of the Bible, though, demands our allegiance. That's why you so often hear, uh, hear people say, yeah, 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 I believe in a God. I believe there is a God. But I don't know if it's the, the God of the Bible. I know there may be a God, but is it really the God of the Bible? Which usually means that they believe in a God of their own making. That always happens to agree with whatever comes to their mind and heart. Most often, though, our rebellion is not an absolute rejection of God and the, like in its face. But as Jen Wilkins said, it's a both-and mentality that says, yes, we will serve Yahweh, but also just in case we will offer devotion to these other gods as well. It's a dual allegiance, you see. Because we claim to love God, but we seem to pursue you know, uh, allegiance of other things. Our mighty king, though, doesn't allow this. Our mighty king demands absolute allegiance. Number two, the second thing I want you to notice from these three verses is that the heart of man bucks against the law of God. It says, let us burst their, their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Church, our rebellious hearts are allergic to the law of God. You see, by default, we see the law of God as bondage and we don't like it. We read the Bible and we see instructions and commands and we react against them because we don't realize that they are bonds of love. Right. May I say, as a side note, <laughs> that as Americans, we sure love our liberty, don't we? We are very prone to, to resisting authority. We reject the idea of anyone telling us what to do because we're free. Freedom and liberty are good things, but they are not ultimate things. So let us make sure we don't idolize freedom, that we don't idolize our personal liberty. Many people have sacrificed their relationship with God in the altar of personal freedom. So let us guard our hearts. Scripture, you see, is filled with instructions and with commands. It's not that God throws an arbitrary standard and says, okay, okay, now you need to live up to this standard and prove to me that you're worthy of my salvation. That's not how God works. It's actually the exact opposite. God knows that we are not only not worthy, but we are incapable. 
He knows that on our own, we are unable to do any good. But because he loves us, he, a holy God, is making us like himself. Holy. Which is why he gives us instruction. You know how you were on your drive here, you were telling your kids, hey, as we go to church and you see all those other kids running around, I see that little Moscoso kid running around, you know, don't do the same. You know, we, we, we tell our kids how they should act. And so does our God because he loves us. Not because he's trying to constrict us. Not only does he tell us what to do in the Bible, but he also gives us the how in the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, our helper, is in us. And he equips us and enables us to obey the law of the Lord. As we read through scripture, the covenant of God, the covenants that God makes with his people are always in them. Blessing is always intertwined with obedience. In God's covenant, there is always blessing that comes with obedience. Now, you may be hearing me say that if you obey, God will bless you. That's not what I said. That's a prosperity gospel. (laughs) But there is only blessing in obedience. That's where blessing is found. The law of the Lord is meant for us to delight in it. It's not meant to constrict us or to limit our joy. Have you ever tried playing a game with no clear rules? They are not fun at all. Or have you ever tried to fly a kite without a string? It makes no sense. Go try it and let me know if it's any fun. Probably isn't. But you see, we often reject the law of God because we misunderstand its purpose. We feel constrained by the law of God, but its purpose really is to draw us near to him. Now, I doubt that I have to convince you of this rebellion that I've been talking about because I know you've seen it, not just out there, but in your very heart. So the question then is, what does God think about the rebellion of man? Which leads me to my second point. Because God is a mighty king, we trust his sovereignty over all things. And I want us to read verses 4 through 6. And it says this. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He, the psalmist, describes God's reaction against the rebellion of man. Let me ask you, does it seem from what we just read that God is worried? Does it seem at all that he is getting nervous because of the rebellion of the, of the kings of the earth? Not at all. How does God react to rebellion? He laughs. Not because our rebellion is funny. Not because our sin is a laughing matter. Our sin, like I said, is serious. He laughs, though, at the arrogance of man. He laughed when the Tower of Babel was being built. He laughed when the makers of the Titanic said even God couldn't sink it. And he laughs at us when we convince ourselves that we are self-sufficient. Have you ever heard a kid tell you something so ridiculous that it just makes you chuckle? If not, you're probably not a parent yet. (laughs) But even when they're dead serious, sometimes kids say the darnest things, right? And I remember one time when I was 18 years old, 
I remember this vividly. I was talking to my dad. We were at church for some reason, and, and I'm talking to my dad, and I, I think I had asked for permission uh, or, or something. I can't remember exactly what the situation was, but I told my dad, I remember this telling my dad, like, Dad, I am 18 years old, I'm an adult, and I get to do what I need to do. And he goes like, <laughs> and he just laughed. And I'm like, what's so funny? And he's like, I am so sorry, but go look at yourself in a mirror right now, please. And so I did. I was mad. And so I remember like stomping all the way to the bathroom. I see myself in the mirror and I saw it. I laughed. Because you see, that day, for some reason, I had chosen to wear a SpongeBob SquarePants t shirt. I was wearing a Superman hat and the most ridiculous pants that were orange. And so you see, I laughed. Because though I was 18 years old, there's no way I was an actual grown-up man, right? Like, I, I was a kid. And so my dad laughed. And so does God when we convince ourselves that we are self-sufficient. Have you ever seen a three-year-old say, I'm done, I'm leaving this house? It's funny to me because I'm like, dude, what's the plan once you hit that door? Like, what are you going to do? It's funny. Now, if they actually leave that door, it's not funny. It's dangerous. They're putting themselves in, in, you know, in harm's way. And that's how God laughs at us, though. When he sees us thinking that we know better than he does. Church, our God is sovereign above all things. He is a mighty king. And so, we only have two options. We can follow the world and its folly as it rebels against God or we can sub submit to his reign and trust his sovereignty. This rebellion against God will not go unpunished, unfortunately. Because God is not only sovereign, but he's also just. Eventually, God will speak to those who rebel against him in his wrath, the psalmist tells us. And he will still do, uh, and, and he will still do whatever he has already planned anyways. And that plan is to set his mighty king in Zion. And that is what he did in Jesus. Amen. He already set his mighty king in Zion. And that is Jesus. He did that when Jesus died on the cross. When he resurrected and ascended into heaven. And he will do it again when Jesus comes back for his people. Amen. Let's go now to verses 79. And I want you to see that because he is a mighty king, we have a hope for the future. Verse 7 says this. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And in this section we hear the voice of God the Son. This section is the main reason we know this psalm is prophetic. This section is obviously too big a description for David or any of his descendants. And in it, we see three things about God the Son that fill us with hope this morning. The first thing I want you to see is the authority of our mighty King. First, we see um, that God is talking about the Son, right? When he says, um, I'm sorry. When he says, um, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We see God talking about a son. Now, was he talking about David? 
Was, was David God's son? Absolutely. But here we get a glimpse of the eternal love relationship between God the Father and God the Son. When he says, today I have begotten you, we know that this isn't describing the origin of Jesus, of God the Son, but it is a description of the relationship of eternal love. The Nicene Creed describes the Son as begotten but not made. So we know that this isn't talking about the origin of the Son, but it's talking about his relationship with God the Father. And in this description, not only do we get a glimpse of the loving relationship within the Trinity, but we also get a glimpse of the authority with which Christ reigns. Jesus himself would speak of his authority in Matthew 28 when he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, our mighty king reigns with authority. Now, the second thing I want you to see is not only the authority of the mighty king, but the heart of the mighty king. We see here that Christ isn't just a mighty king, but he is also a merciful king that has a heart for the nations. Remember those nations that rage against him? Christ, has, Christ says over them, mine. You know the kings that rage over him? He says, mine. Andreas Kostenberg, um, a scholar, said that the notion of mission is intimately bound up with his saving plan, which moves from creation to new creation and has to do with his salvation reaching the ends of the earth. Because you see, God has a heart for the nations. And those nations are not just the Amazons and Africa or whatever you're thinking, but the nations are us. We are the nations, and our mighty king has a heart for the nation, has a heart for us, has a heart for sinners and sufferers. Aren't you glad this morning that our God is a merciful king? That in spite of our rebellion, he sent his son to deliver the nations, to deliver us. And as he did that, he didn't just save groups of people. He didn't save lumps of people, but he saved specific individuals, you and me. He called us by name and he adopted us into his family. So we have a, a king that reigns with authority. We have a king that has a heart for the nations. But he also is a mighty king that has power. So I want you to see the power of the mighty king. Because you could say, well, he has great intentions, but can he do it? Right. Absolutely he can. The next reason for hope is that our mighty king is not only mighty in his authority, but mighty in his power too. Verse 9 says this, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This image paints a vivid picture of how powerful our king is in comparison with the kings of the earth. As the earth rebels and conspires, just as he created all things by the power of his word, God can destroy what he wills with little to no effort. And yet, he chooses to be patient. As we look at the world around us, we might be tempted to be overwhelmed by how bleak things are. We watch the news, we doom scroll through social media, and we may be tempted to think that the enemy is actually winning. But we know that our just God will bring about justice in his perfect time. And we also know that if he hasn't returned yet, it's not because he's late. It's not because he's unable, but it's because he is patient and abounding in steadfast love, he says. And he is waiting for more to come to him. 
When we sing joy to the world, let earth receive her king, it will certainly be a joyous time for those of, you know, for those of us who are his. But for those who continue to rage against God, it will not be so joyous, will it? Things will be very different for them. Which leads us to the end of the psalm, verses 10 through 12. It says, I want us to see that because we serve a mighty king, we live according to his will. Verse 10 says this, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And then he goes on to say, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You see, the psalmist closed this song with three commands and one promise. As he considers the folly of rebelling against God, the psalmist brings us to the only logical conclusion. We should serve him with fear, we should rejoice with trembling, and we should submit to his authority. This is not fear-mongering, people. Please don't hear this as God trying to intimidate us into submission. I want you to hear the gentle and tender voice of a God that is making an invitation for us. This is a tender invitation by a God who describes himself as someone who is slow to anger, who is patient, and who is abounding in steadfast love. So the first thing he tells us, serve the Lord with fear. And the psalmist invites us to serve him with fear. The word fear here, as, uh, as it's used here, I'm sorry, implies that God is the center of all existence and power. And that human beings, even kings, who are powerful on a human level, are not. Rather, we are dependent on God. All of us. And so we serve him with fear. We serve him with fear. We serve him with reverence. But that's not all. Notice that the psalmist immediately says, follows that command by rejoice with trembling. Because you see, serving the Lord with fear comes hand in hand with joy. One of the biggest lies that we buy into is that living for the glory of God and enjoying our lives are polar opposites. We think sometimes that maybe we, if I want to live for the glory, and this was certainly me as a teenager, I always thought I either live for the glory of God or I actually enjoy my life. But you know what? That's a lie. As a matter of fact, it's the other way around. You cannot have one without the other. Or as John Piper has famously put it, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Yes, God wants you to serve him with fear, but he wants you to rejoice in trembling as you do that. This leads us to the third uh, command that we see in this in these three verses he tells us to kiss the sun now the third instruction sounds a little weird for us in 21st century american culture right to kiss the sun that sounds a little weird as a latino it sounds a little less weird because i still kiss my parents every time i see them but it's still a not way to put it what does this mean then this kiss that the psalmist talks about is not a kiss on the cheek I don't know, some of you may remember this, but there is a scene in the movie The Godfather when a man comes to him asking for mercy. And he utters the words, be my friend, Godfather. 
He then proceeds to grab his hand and he kisses the ring. And it seems that at that moment, the Godfather is appeased. Because you see, kissing someone's hand is a sign of submission. You may, seen picture, uh, you may, see, may have seen pictures of people kissing the ring of the Pope in the Vatican. It's a sign of submission. In other cultures, to touch someone's feet is a sign of respect. My brother's girlfriend is from Pune, India. And in her culture, a, sign, a way to show respect is by touching people's feet. And so every time she sees her parents, she touches her, their feet. And that's a sign of respect. It's different than what we do. But see, when she came to Guatemala to visit my family, she was telling my brother it was so hard for her not to touch my parents' feet because she so wanted to show them respect that he felt rude not to do it. When the Bible tells us to kiss the son, it's not telling us to give him a kiss in the cheek. And I know that in our culture, it's weird to kiss someone's hand or it's weird to kiss someone's feet. Because we're Americans. We don't bow before anyone, (laughs) much less kiss their feet, right? But as I heard someone say, when you kiss the hands of our mighty king, you will not see your ring. If you, see, if you kiss his hands and feet, only when you're that close will you see um, that, this hand, that these hands and that these feet are marked not with rings, but with scars. Amen. And those scarred hands and feet are a testimony to his love for you. Amen. Our mighty king is a conqueror, but one who conquers with love and grace. He has conquered with the purpose of bringing glory to his name, yes, but also freedom to his children. He is a refuge. And I want you to see that this psalm closes with a promise, the promise of refuge. Before we close this morning, I want to make sure that we don't skip over this promise. In verse 12, it says, Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Do you hear that invitation? God is inviting the nations to take refuge in him. And those who do are blessed by him. Earlier I mentioned that there are only two ways of living. We can live in rebellion to the rightful king, or we can take refuge in him. As the psalmist closes the song, he does so with a promise for those who relent in the rebellion against God and kiss the son. Let me ask you this morning. Could this be an invitation for you? Have you lived your life in rebellion against God? Now, notice I'm not saying, have you lived your life away from the church? No, no, no. I may be speaking to some of you that are here Sunday after Sunday. Have you lived your life in rebellion against God? Is it possible even that this rebellion doesn't necessarily look like a full-out rejection of God, but as a both-and, like we said earlier? Where, yeah, 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 you give homage to Yahweh, but also you pursue your happiness in the world. Is it possible that he might be drawing you to himself this morning? As I close this morning, I know some of you might be thinking, this is an odd passage to start our Arvin series. Because in the end, this doesn't feel very Christmassy, does it? It doesn't quite fit the spirit of Christmas that world sells us, does it? The reality is that I think we're often too quick to jump into the manger 
We want a cuddly Jesus, one that can be at our beck and call. We want cute, cuddly Jesus. But you see, we skip over Advent, and we jump, we jump right into Christmas without considering the depth of our rebellion against God. If we don't think about the fact that in the face of our rebellion and provocation, God offered us mercy, we might fail to fully understand what Christmas really is all about. We might not understand the significance of God's grace for us. During this Advent season, there's always this tension. Because we, you see, we live in this in-between. We live in the already, not yet. And we very much feel the weight of the not yet, don't we? But what do you see this morning? We ask the Lord that no, you know, we, we ask him that no matter what's going on around us, no matter what suffering we see around us, no matter how bleak the world around us seems, how about we ask him this morning to prepare our hearts, not for December 25th, but for the second coming of his son that we may live in the light of the coming of Jesus, that he would prepare our hearts, that we may live for his glory with fear and trembling, that we may rejoice as we serve him, that as we pursue him, we would find joy, not in the things of this world, but in him alone. How about you stand with us as we sing a song that I believe you've heard before. <laughs>